Take your Bibles this morning and open them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. While you're turning there, I just want to give you a few announcements about VBS this month. Coming up actually in a few weeks. I'll let you know first, tonight at 6.30, I want to invite you back because we will be canvassing these neighborhoods around us with some flyers for VBS. So if you... Uh, would like to join us, please be back for that tonight. We'll give you the flyers and have a few things to discuss and then go out in these neighborhoods around us. Also, I want to let you know, if you would like a VBS t-shirt, I need you to sign up tonight. By tonight, there's a sign-up sheet and a picture of the design of the shirt out on the resource table there in the fellowship hall. The more shirts we get, the cheaper the shirts are. So if you could let us know so we can place an order, that would be great. And then finally, if you think... Uh, you would like to help at VBS but won't be able to make the times we're having it this year, you are more than welcome to donate financially to help pay for some crafts and different things that we will need this year. So if you want to donate to VBS, just please um, earmark a check or, or make sure one of us know and we'll get it to where it needs to go, all right? So don't forget the canvassing tonight, the shirt sign up tonight, uh, buy tonight, and then the, the donation if you would like to uh, help that way. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get to God's word this morning. Luke chapter 3. And if you have been paying attention to where we're at in Luke, you may be somewhat a little perplexed or confused about where we're going. Last week we finished verses 21 and 22. Now we find ourselves in verses 23 through 38, looking at the genealogy of Christ. And some of you have been asking in the last several weeks, are you really going to preach the genealogy of Christ? What is the benefit of preaching that? And you've been surprised, maybe some of you are surprised this morning, that we're going to be walking through this portion of Scripture. And I will admit, it is a rather difficult text to preach. Uh, it's difficult to understand exactly why it's included in Scripture. Most of us, if we're being honest, would, would be guilty of this, of coming to the genealogies throughout Scripture and typically skipping over them. Uh, being bored by them, being confused by them, not really understanding their significance. But we also know that Scripture is full of genealogies, isn't it? There's, there's a lot throughout the Old Testament especially, and there's some here in the New Testament. And we have a hard time dissecting them and to be honest with you that's the difficulty in preaching it this morning what's the application of it because every sermon should have either directly implied or laid out in a way where the holy spirit can easily apply it in your mind every sermon should have application to it so how do you preach the genealogy of christ in a way that it applies typically you come to a passage and you study it and you begin to understand the meaning of it. And the meaning of it clearly and easily lays out the application. That's not always the case with a list of names. Such as what we come to today. And the difficulty really in preaching this and in studying this passage of Scripture is enhanced when we look at the fact that there are only two genealogies of Christ in Scripture. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew records one. Luke chapter 3, Luke records one. And those two genealogies are actually different. 
So not only is it difficult to preach because it's difficult to apply sometimes and difficult to understand sometimes, it's also difficult to preach because there are only two and the two are different. And you would think they would be the same because they're talking about the same person. They're talking about one individual. So why are they different? It adds and enhances the difficulty. In fact, we're going to spend much of our time this morning highlighting and trying to reconcile the differences between the only two genealogies of Christ in Scripture. Because, quite frankly, church, many skeptics come to these genealogical passages to cast doubt upon God's Word. They don't line up. They don't mesh. So God's Word must have error within it. So we will look at them together this morning. We'll try to reconcile them We'll try to lay out the point why Luke includes them and we will try to apply it to our lives. Now, like I said, we would expect them to be the same, but their differences are actually wide ranging. Some differences are simple. Some differences are major. Some of the differences that we find between Matthew's account and Luke's account of Jesus's ancestry uh, are, are these that follow. Luke actually begins his ancestry account with the present and he works back to the past. All other gene- genealogies of the time frame begin with the past and work back to the present, including Matthew's account. Some of the differences are a little bit more significant than that. Matthew's account follows a pattern of 14 generations in groups of three, presumably to make it easy to understand, easy to memorize, easy to study. But Luke's genealogy actually records some 40 generations, quite a few extra than Matthew, and he doesn't have any seeming pattern to it. Matthew, even still greater differences, Matthew has 42 names in his genealogy of Jesus. Luke has... 77. Still, Luke includes no women in his genealogy. Matthew has several notable women. Matthew records the royal bloodline of Jesus listing all the Davidic kings. Luke does not list any Davidic kings except for the last two there. Only two Davidic kings. Most genealogies are not laid in the middle of a narrative like Luke's. His is quite uncommon to the time in the structure and style. Most are like Matthew's. They're laid at the beginning of a book or a gospel or a narrative. In fact, there is actually no other writing of Jesus that has been discovered, whether it be scriptural, apocryphal, or Gnostic, that includes a genealogy between the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, except for Luke alone. And he does that for very good and very specific reason, as we'll get to in a moment. Perhaps the most striking and significant difference between the two that most of us get caught up upon, and rightly so, is that they possess a vast amount of different names, and generations and ancestry in their two accounts. Virtually 
all the names between these two accounts in Matthew and Luke, all the names from David to Joseph, Mary's husband, virtually all the names are different except for two. That, church, is actually a problem. How can one man have one ancestry and so many different names? In fact, the differences and the significant differences are enhanced even a little bit further when we look at Matthew's account, Matthew's record and Luke's record. They actually follow two different lines from David. Between Abraham and David, the genealogies are almost identical, minus one name difference. But from David, Matthew begins to follow the line of Solomon. Luke follows the line of Nathan. So yet again, how can one man have different names, different generations, and follow two different lines in one genealogy? How do we begin to reconcile these differences, these issues? Well, it's important to realize as we look at these genealogies that neither one of them is exhausted. They're both significantly compressed. They're both significantly abridged. But still, to have two different lines that these two different authors follow from David on is hard for us to reconcile. So we have natural questions that I want us to begin to answer this morning so that we can have an idea of how Scripture goes together and we can have a firm grasp upon some seemingly difficult text in Scripture and confidence in God's Word as a whole. So let's ask the questions, why? Why did these two writers follow two different lines for the same person? Let's ask the question, what's the point? Why, or what is the point that Luke is trying to communicate in following a a different line? And how can they follow different lines? Really, let me just kind of set the tone for just a second. Matthew's gospel was written first. Luke is the one who's deliberately doing something different. Deliberately doing something different that's already been written, recorded, and circulated in the church in Matthew's gospel. Luke has a point that he's trying to make in including this genealogy, how he includes it, and where he includes it. So what is that point? And again, how can they do this? Because so many genealogies, especially of their time, follows the line of the father in the family as the true ancestry of the family. And Jesus didn't have a father. There's a difficulty. But if we take Luke's position, even, you look in verse 23... Even if we concede what Luke concedes in verse 23, that Jesus is the son of Joseph, as was supposed, he still only had one father on earth. So again, how are there two different lines? How are there two different grandfathers and two different great-grandfathers? Why the different names? Well, to understand the differences, we need to begin to understand the intent of the authors in including their genealogy and why they even write their gospel in the first place. Matthew writes his gospel to a Jewish and a Hebrew audience. He starts his genealogy of Christ with Abraham and he is primarily concerned with making the point of Jesus' Jewish ancestry. 
Matthew wants to lay the foundation that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In fact, both of these genealogies want to do that. But that's Matthew's sole purpose. Luke has an extended purpose. Luke writes his gospel to a more Gentile and universal audience. And he actually traces his ancestry all the way back to Adam. Because Luke is primarily concerned, not necessarily with Jesus' Jewish origins, but rather Jesus' universal relation to humanity as a whole. Luke wants you to see his genealogical account of Christ and understand Jesus relates to all of humanity, not just the Jews. So these differences begin to be understandable when you begin to under look at their look at their intent, understand their intent in writing their gospels and including these different genealogies. Both authors don't include all generations. Both authors pick and choose who they're going to include in Jesus' ancestry, and both do it to express their purpose of using Jesus' different genealogy. But still I have to ask answer the question and ask the question, how? How can there be two different lines that are followed for one single person? And there are very uh, uh, a plethora of many theories out there to try to reconcile these two differences. And I believe the most simple, clearest, biblical answer and solution to the two different genealogies as one that you've probably heard a lot, one that's been in the church for a while. I believe Matthew's following Joseph's line of ancestry and Luke is following Mary's line. Matthew wants to communicate Jesus' legal ancestry to show that he is legally the rightful king, the rightful heir to David's throne, the rightful Messiah. Luke wants to follow Jesus' biological ancestry. He wants to follow and show us that Jesus is human. He's not just Jewish. He has actually got a biological history to Him. Flesh and bone like the rest of us. I will admit that this notion has been um, dismissed and debated within recent decades of church history. Primarily because it's so uncommon for anyone to ever follow the genealogy of a mother or a woman. So, Skeptics or people that want to debate this position will come to this text and say, it's really not Mary's genealogy. One, she's not mentioned. And two, it's quite uncommon for people to follow that line of thinking and that structure. But I, I would add to you what Leon Morris says about it. We don't know what would happen in a genealogical account with a person who doesn't have a father. With a person who doesn't have any earthly dad. We don't know how they would reckon a genealogy in that way so it's really not uncommon for luke to follow mary's line because jesus is not common is he jesus's genealogy is unlike anyone else's genealogy luke has the right to follow a very uncommon approach as he looks at and wants to communicate jesus's biological line so as we look from a top view down upon this genealogy we want to see Luke stressing the human nature of Christ that he is 
a man. Look at all the evidence. And again, that's not out of the realm of possibility that Luke would be focusing on Mary in that regard. In fact, he's put the major attention thus far in his gospel upon Mary versus Joseph, hasn't he? Matthew looks at Joseph over Mary in his opening chapters. Luke has definitely looked at Mary over Joseph. She's mentioned more times than he is. She's listed before he is in in accounts. She has speaking roles that Joseph doesn't have. She even writes a song and sings a song that's recorded in Luke's Gospel. Joseph doesn't have anything that comes close to that. So Luke has already been focusing so much on Mary. She's been a dominant figure in his Gospel. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he would take such a unique approach. Again, I would highlight that his, his genealogy, its structure itself is so unique to the time. I've, I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. He, he moves from the present to the past. That is totally foreign to how any other genealogies from the time that we've discovered are written. In fact, Luke is the only one who does that. A few have mem- mirrored him in centuries past, but the time that he's living and writing, genealogies do not move from present to past. He's structured his different. He's placed his in the middle of a narrative. He's compressed it between two stories that connect, the baptism and the temptation. He's almost interrupted a narrative with the genealogy. No other genealogy is included in the middle of a narrative like this. And in fact, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. That's, that's obvious, isn't it? Luke's trying to make a point here with this genealogy. Nobody, no other genealogy of the time, again, goes back all the way to Adam. It's a different, uncommon structure that Luke is writing here. So it's not uncommon that he would record Mary's ancestry. And I would even say, despite the differences between Matthew's and Luke's account, Luke's readers would have certainly known what he was doing by one, including this genealogy at all, and by two, including it exactly where he included it in his gospel. And that's really what I want to convey to you this morning. Why did he include it? Why did he include it where it's at? Well, first, let me tell you, Jewish history, we know that genealogies were extremely, extremely important. In fact, they were meticulously recorded and kept and placed in a public fashion for public access. And they did that primarily for six, six reasons. Number one, they were meticulously maintained and extremely important because ancestry determined the original division of the promised land among the twelve tribes. It was important in Jewish history and the nation of Israel to know your background, your ancestry, your tribe. We see that even in the New Testament, don't we? Luke told us Anna is from the tribe of Asher. Paul tells us he's from the tribe of Benjamin. A few others in the New Testament, a few other characters list their tribe, where they're from. Secondly, ancestry established the right of inheritance to a particular property and all that came with that property. So crops, buildings, livestock, etc., etc. Your ancestry determined what you inherited. Thirdly, ancestry formed the basis for the principle of the kinsman redemption. That if a poor man was forced to sell his property, his nearest relative was to purchase it. 
And we know the story of Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz married Ruth and redeemed her as her kinsman redeemed her, redeemer to deliver her out of a poor state. Fourthly, ancestry was important because it played a role in taxation. We know of Mary and Joseph having to travel back to Bethlehem because they were from the line of David. In Israel at this time, you were taxed based upon your ancestry. Fifthly, ancestry determined one's ability to serve as priest. Or in, in fact, other roles in Israel. You could only have certain positions if you came from certain tribes. But sixth, and lastly, most importantly, and really what's most directly related to Jesus, any claim to be king or messiah would have to be clearly backed up by genealogical records. That's the overarching purpose of Luke and Matthew, including their genealogical accounts. If Jesus is the Messiah, He must have the right credentials. He must be qualified. He must be from the correct line. There must be proof and credibility that He can be. It's possible for Him to be the Messiah. If he claims to be the Messiah and it's not even possible from his ancestry, we can condemn him as a blasphemer, which they do anyways. So, understanding the importance from those six things of the Jewish ancestry, we know that records during this time were kept by both private families and by the Jewish nation as, whole, as a whole, and they were definitely made public records for easy access. In fact, most everybody agrees, Matthew and Luke, get their genealogical accounts from these public records located in the temple. Now, why does Luke include this genealogy where he does? Why not put it at the beginning of his gospel like Matthew? Why wedge it in between, in such an uncommon way, wedge it in between these two connecting narratives of the baptism and the temptation in chapter 4? I would, I would say Luke's readers definitely understand why. And I would say Luke is making an unmistakable point about Jesus. Here is the credentials of Christ. He's exactly who we've said He is. All these testimonies up to this point, uh, the angels, uh, John the Baptist, Zechariah, Elizabeth, even Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna, even the Trinity at the baptism, all of these testimonies, are being confirmed by Jesus' ancestral descent. Here is the proof that He can be the Christ. Here's the proof that He is the Messiah. In fact, that's Luke's intent for wedging it right here in this narrative. He is building the proof and the credibility that Jesus not only can be, but is the Christ. Here's irrefutable proof. Here's His bloodline. Here's where He comes from. And so we see Matthew begin his gospel with the genealogy to lay a foundation. We see Luke use the genealogy to prove an already existing foundation that he's already laid. So up to this point, he's been building, been building and building right before the beginning of his ministry. How can this mere man is even qualified to be the Christ? Look at his ancestry. Here's the proof. Look at his genealogy. Now, before we go any further, let's actually stop and read the passage 
before you get bored and check out, let me just remind you, this list of names is sacred Scripture, worthy of reading, inspired by God, worthy of our attention. So we will begin to read it. And just a side note, I'm going to read it with profound confidence so that you don't know if I butcher a name. Let's look at verse 23. Now that we kind of understand the difference and maybe can reconcile in our minds the differences and understand the intent of the authors, maybe now we can get a good grasp and see this picture Luke is trying to paint. Verse 23, Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Madat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eshli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josic, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadim, the son of Ur, the son of jo- Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Ilkim, the son of Mela, the son of Minna, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nation, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's not exhaustive, but it's long enough. Definitely longer than Matthew's account. Luke begins by telling us the age of Christ beginning His ministry. Gives us a clue into why He's placed this here. I want you to know the proof and credibility, the qualification of Christ before He begins His ministry. So verse 23, He's beginning His ministry and He's about 30 years old. That's the time Joseph, that's the age of Joseph when he began to rule Egypt. That's the age of David when he began to rule Israel. That's the age, according to the law, of a priest when he could enter into his service. Jesus is about 30 years old. I would also add to you that's relatively young. Four years older than where I am right now. Jesus was a young guy when he began his ministry. That, that should lend itself to trusting his deity because he's so profound, so wise, and so young. He's about 30 years old. Luke also tells us the relationship between Joseph and Jesus. It was a relationship that was supposed, a relationship that seemed as if Joseph was his dad. He's really not. Jesus has no earthly father. But the overarching picture of Luke's intent is that he's pointing to both the divinity 
and the humanity of Christ together in this one account. That's what Luke wants us to walk away with, wants his readers to walk away with. Yeah, he's a human who's been baptized, but he's also divine. As we look at this church, we could even say that the genealogy of Christ is the history of God's salvific work. It's the history of God working to send a Savior. All these people God has put in place, all this time God has been providentially working so that Galatians 4.4, at the right time, Christ would be born, Christ would be sent to save humanity. All of this, all these names that we read, are the build-up to the culmination of Christ coming to save. We look at the genealogy and we should be in wonder and have a little bit of joy and celebration with us. This is God's history to save us. And in fact, it's not only God's history, it's God's desire to save us. The Trinity just didn't just desire to save humanity when Christ came. God had desired to save humanity from the beginning. And from the beginning had been working to send Christ. Here lays before us the history of salvation. But also, just like the baptism and just like the temptation, we see a picture and really the history of the supernatural and the natural converging together in one. It's a foundation and a picture for the incarnation. He's wanting to confirm exactly what the Trinity said in verses 21 and 22 at His baptism. He really is the anointed servant of God. He really is the divine Son of God, the righteous Jesus. Again, there's no doubt Luke's readers would have wanted to know, is this really possible of Christ? When the Holy Spirit descends on Him and the Father speaks over Him, He seems to us just a mere man. Is it really possible that He could be the Christ? In fact, it's safe for us to assume that the crowds witnessing Jesus' baptism would have flocked to the genealogical records. Is it possible that Christ has the correct lineage? So Luke anticipates this question and includes Jesus' genealogy to serve as that proof that He is qualified to be the Messiah. Not only legally, according to Matthew, but even biologically, according to Luke. In fact, Luke includes this account after Matthew's to show that from both parents, Jesus is unmistakably from David, from Abraham, from God. There's no doubt about His ancestry. No question. You can't turn to His lineage and cast doubt upon Him. He's exactly who He says He is. And God has done exactly what He said He would do. All those times of foretelling Christ's coming exactly how He would come. Here's the proof. Here He is. I want to highlight to you this morning four names that stress Luke's point of including, including this genealogy. Four names that show the proof of Christ, the qualification of Christ, and the ministry of Christ. Just simply four out of 77. The first one being David. A name that both Matthew and Luke include in their accounts. <clears throat> a rather important name for Jesus to be connected to. They may follow two separate lines and give an account of two different parents, Mary and Joseph, but they both come back to David. It is their common meeting point. And that's because they're both wanting to stress the fact that Jesus, this man, is the fulfillment 
of the Davidic covenant, isn't he? 2 Samuel chapter 7, especially verse 14. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. God tells David, I'm going to sit one on your throne who's going to reign forever. Here's the one qualified to reign forever. Here's the one credible enough to reign forever. He is the one who will sit on David's throne. A clear, clear expectation of the Messiah. The question would be asked, even by one of his disciples, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked that in John chapter 1 as Philip begins to tell him we found the Messiah, we found the Christ. How can a man out of Nazareth be worth anything? Christ's lineage proves that He's worth everything. Proves His Messiahship claims. Proves that what the Trinity said about Him, He's righteous and anointed and the Divine Son, it's all true. In fact, Christ's lineage proves things for us later. In the future, Revelation 11.15, He is the one who will reign on His throne forever and ever. Here is that one. Here is that Messiah. The true and rightful King. So, first, we look at David and first we learn Jesus can be the Savior because He's from the line of David fulfilling the promise to David. The second name I want you to look at is verse 34. Abraham. Another common name between Matthew and Luke. Another name they both want to stress to us. Paul would actually call Jesus in Galatians 3 the single offspring of Abraham. The single promised offspring of Abraham. He would say, I believe in verse 16 of Galatians 3, he would say that the promise of God was made to Abraham and to his offspring singular. And he would go on to explain the offspring is Christ. Telling us that Jesus is that one offspring in whom this, this promise will be fulfilled. The promise that if you believe, it will be counted to you as righteousness. Jesus fulfills that promise. And so when God says to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He says that to him twice. Genesis 22.18, Genesis 26.4, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God is referring to Jesus. Here is the one that comes through Abraham as the promised offspring who will bless all the nations of the earth. And haven't all the nations been blessed through this man? Every gift of forgiveness, every offer of salvation offered to the world? Of course, he is the one who's blessed all nations of the earth. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That's a big deal to these Jews. That's a major deal. Abraham's our father. David's our king. And we're waiting from the one who comes from both of their lines. Here he is. But Christ descending from Abraham also stresses that he is an Israelite. I don't want to leave that out. In fact, he's the ideal Israelite. He's showing what God's people were actually supposed to be had they followed and obeyed God. He is the great and complete chosen one of God, just like Israel was supposed to be the complete and perfect chosen people of God. And in fact, what we find in chapter 3, you remember I said, Luke's including this genealogy to confirm everything that's been said up to this point, all the claims of Messiahship, it, com it fulfills directly Simeon's 
statement in chapter 2, verse 32, He is the glory of Israel. Coming from Abraham, here's the glory of Israel. So, David, he can be the Savior because he came, came from the line of David as foretold. Abraham, he can be the Savior because he came from the line of Abraham as promised. The third person I want you to look at real quick this morning, verse 38, Adam. Luke is going further here than Matthew, going further than anyone else does in a genealogical account of Christ. And this is the distinction he's trying to draw here that he wants to point out. He's stressing a rather remarkable reality. Jesus is a man. Flesh and bone. Physical. He really does exist. He relates not just to the Jews. He's not just from Abraham. He's from Adam. He relates to us all. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through this man. He's Luke's doing something that's obvious. We know we're all from Adam, right? It's a glaring logical reality, but he drives his readers to that point to stress the humanity of Christ. And let me just point out three ways that this serves a purpose for us. Number one, I want you to notice how concerned Scripture is with us understanding the whole person of Christ. How many times in Luke's Gospel already have we been confronted with the fact that Jesus is human? That Jesus is a man. We saw it at His baptism. We saw it when He was praying at His baptism. We saw it when He was um, in the temple at 12 years old. We saw it in the birth, the virgin birth. Mary being pregnant. Scripture, Luke, is concerned with stressing the humanity of Christ to us. That's because that's a vital, important point of our salvation. And I would add to you, many people, unless you think that's not an important point, many people have denied that aspect of Christ. Because the incarnation to them is just a stumbling block. They don't know how God could be God and man at the same time. Gnostics from the early parts of the church have denied the humanity of Christ. Luke is making it abundantly clear. If you haven't caught on yet, here it is. He comes from Adam. He is a man. He's here in the flesh and blood. Second, I want to remind you of something I said last week. Jesus' humanity always serves to show us His dedication to save humanity. Every time in Scripture you are confronted with the fact that Christ is a man, you should also be confronted with the fact that He desires to save humanity. Because the reality is that Jesus became human. Why did He become human? It's a clear picture of His desire to save humanity. He didn't have to become anything, right? Yet the infinite God became finite man for us to save us. We look at His lineage going back to Adam and we see it is for our salvation that this man can now be the replacement or the substitute for man on the cross. Thirdly, Luke stressing his humanity. He's telling us that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us. Right. Hebrews 4.15 if His humanity serves to show us how far He's willing to go to save us, 
taking on flesh, becoming like us, then it's also true that His humanity shows how much He is willing to endure to be our complete and adequate sacrifice. He didn't just become something. He endured life here on this earth for us. He lived like we lived. He lived where we lived. How we lived. He submitted to and fulfilled the law of God for us. His endurance of living as a human being in this world shows God's great desire to save sinners. So Jesus can now be the Savior because He's fully human. He can save humanity by taking humanity's place. The fourth person I want to highlight out of this passage this morning is God. This man Jesus comes through David, through Abraham, from Adam, from God. It's a remarkable truth in verse 38. In one verse, we have both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus laid right in front of our eyes. One verse communicates both truths to us. Every other genealogical account traces back to a single human figure. Luke alone traces Jesus back to God. In fact, no one else can be traced back to God, can they? Luke notes there that Adam is a son of God, but he's not a son of God like Jesus is. In fact, in the Greek, the word son throughout this passage isn't even included. It's just names together. The son is implied. But here we have... Adam and God made that, Luke made that connection for us. Adam is a son of God, but not like Christ is. It's simply meaning that he's created by God. He came from God. There's no one before him except for God. And Adam, in every right and every way in the garden, had the privilege of passing on that kind of sonship to God. But when he sinned, he lost that privilege to pass on that sonship, that daughtership relationship to God to the rest of us. But what Luke is saying is that here is the one who can now take what Adam failed to do and make us all sons and daughters of God. Here's the one, the true and only Son of God who will redeem all believers back into sonship and daughtership with God. Because He is the Son of God, traced back to God Himself. Luke's doing the very same thing he did there with Adam and stressing his humanity. When he looks at God, he's stressing his divinity. So Christ can be the Messiah, not only because he comes from David, not only because he comes from Abraham as an Israelite, not only because he's fully human coming from Adam, but he can be the Messiah because he is God coming from God. In fact, what Luke is saying in his genealogy by tracing back to God, is that this Jesus that you saw at His baptism, that you've read about up to this point, is no mere man. Connected to God Himself. Close to God Himself. He has the power and the authority to be the complete sacrifice. In fact, when we read that Christ is connected back to God, that means when we look at His work on the cross, we don't have to worry about if it's enough. Understanding His divinity screams to us that the sacrifice on the cross was complete, was enough to save every human being that would ever come to Him for salvation. 
No matter the background, no matter the generation, the age they live in, no matter their ethnicity, past, present, and future, He is strong enough to save everyone. So Jesus can be the Savior because He comes from David. He can be the Savior because He comes from Abraham. He can be the Savior because He's fully human. He can be the Savior because He is fully divine. So let's try to apply all this. Try to bring it all back into a somewhat neat package. What do we take away from Luke's genealogy? One, this genealogy can serves to confirm what's already been said about him in the gospel. He is the Christ. Two, it serves to fulfill all the scripture concerning him. He's fulfilled every prophecy about him coming to earth. Every Messiah prophecy Christ has completed. But thirdly, and most importantly, I think, Luke's genealogy doesn't just confirm Christ, doesn't just show that He's fulfilled all Scripture, it also shows us that He is the perfect mediator between God and man. For here's the one who traces back to God Himself, but who has a biological human line of ancestry. If anyone can stand before God and intercede on our behalf, it is Jesus. For here's the one who is divine and human. Here's the one who has a history, has a bloodline, and yet comes from God. Here is the Son of Man and the Son of God. That's why we call Christ the God-Man. Luke's genealogy doesn't just scream confirmation to us. It screams the ministry of Christ to us. He is the intercessor, the mediator on our behalf. He who endured what we endure, He who lived this life, He who took on flesh and blood, now stands in front of God on behalf of flesh and blood. How remarkable of a thought. How amazing a truth that we can deduce from a genealogy. Here is the Son of God, the Son of Man, dying in man's place to reconcile man back to God and intercede for man to God. That means we can run to Him, church. That means we can turn to Him who understands us, who speaks for us, who pleads with God on our behalf. We can look at the genealogy and remind it how much Christ cares for those He saves. He speaks to the Father for us. So this genealogy, it's not only the history of salvation. It's not only the proof of the adequacy of Jesus being the Christ, it also shows us the continuing work and ministry of Christ interceding and mediating. Who better, again, to speak to God for us than the God-man? So when we see the genealogy, just close with this thought, we should be confronted with the Gospel. We should be reminded of the length that Christ went to save. The endurance that He endured to be the righteous sacrifice. But also His ability to mediate between us and God. His ability to speak to God on our behalf. Here's the one 
who, yeah, has a lot of names behind his, but who means everything to us. And these names mean something to us. They mean God providentially desired and worked to save us and that Christ can now speak to God for us because he's human. He knows what it was like living this life like we did. Father, I thank you for your word. Even the genealogical accounts that are difficult to communicate, sometimes difficult to understand, and Father, always seemingly difficult to apply. But we look at them, we study them, we try to communicate them because we know Your Word is from You and that You give us things for a reason, for a purpose. This isn't just taking up text. This isn't just taking up space so that Luke's Gospel would be long enough. It's here for a very, very specific purpose. And God, I thank You that You erase all doubt. People may question whether You, Lord, are the real Messiah, the real Christ, but they cannot look to Your ancestry to question that. You give us irrefutable proof and credibility of Your qualifications. And God, people may not think that You care to speak on our behalf to mediate between man and God. Lord, but Your genealogy is the proof that You do care. You care enough to become human. You care enough to endure humanity. You care enough to have a genealogy. So I thank You that You became man. I thank You that You are God. I thank You for the incarnation. Because that means You can be sacrificed on the cross for us, and You were. That means that Your sacrifice would be enough, and it was. It is. And it means we can now relate to You forever as a great high priest who knows us. Thank You, Lord. Let us meditate and think upon these thoughts and continue to speak these truths into our hearts. In Your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.